0: Well, <clears throat> good morning. After three times repeating that back this morning, you guys have down, got it down pat. So as Nathan said, my name is Kyle, but don't worry, there wasn't a misprint in your bulletin. That is how you spell my name. I used that joke last week, didn't I? But I see a lot of new faces, so I know that this is not all the same people that were here. Uh, Last week. So, as if you're visiting uh, like me, you know that, or you don't know that we're going through a series uh, over the summer called "You Asked for It," and people in the congregation have asked a series of questions, and uh, each week we're going to look at one of those questions and and try to address it. So, this is what was asked this week: Is the Bible really written by God? Why do we pick and choose which scripture is true and relevant? What is the role of the Bible? Uh, um, those questions can hardly fit on a single slide. Uh, they can't really fit in a single sermon, um, but we'll, we'll try. We'll see what we're, we're able to do. There's parts that I've uh, cut out because some of us will want to have lunch uh, sometime today. So what we've, I've done is, uh, I haven't sent these to the church yet, but uh, I've gathered some other resources that kind of supplement what I'm saying and written some. And uh, if you go to the website later this week, the church website, where you can find the link to the sermon. There'll be links to some blogs and different videos and things to kind of fill out because we're not going to be able to hit uh, all of this. All right, let me get a drink and then we'll... All right, so back to our question. What what kind of struck me about this question is, is this middle one here. Why do we pick and choose which scripture is true and relevant? In other words, what I was kind of thinking they were asking is, there's some parts of the Bible that we either ignore or we just don't seem to use. Why, why is that? And that got me thinking about building Lego or Ikea. Have you ever kind of had this problem? <laughs> or you get to the end of your Lego set or your Ikea and there's pieces left over. What, what happened? If, 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 that's okay, if, you have, if your chair looks like this at the end or if you have pieces left over, what happened? This is a bit of a response, huh? You didn't read the instructions. You either thought you could do it by yourself or you, didn't, you lost the instructions or you had a different idea you were going to make some avant-garde art piece instead of a chair. Uh, so we know that if you have pieces left over, then something went wrong. And it's, um, it's not entirely different with Scripture. I think it, we, we fail to see how the different parts of the Bible apply when we fail to understand what the Bible is. So uh, recently, I think a couple months ago, GQ magazine ran an article entitled 21 Books You Don't Have to Read, and they took 21 classic books that they said, these aren't worth reading, and they gave another one instead. And to generate interest for their list, they included the Bible on that list. And this is what they said. It's a bit of a hot take. The Bible is rated very highly by people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read the Bible know there are some good parts, but overall, it certainly is not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sensuous, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. Hmm. Now, this generated a a lot of uh, negative feedback, Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting, because I thought, well, how many times... Do we actually do that? Do we rate the Bible very highly, but we don't, we say, and we, say we live by it, but we, we fail to, to read it, at least its entirety? And, and why do we not read parts? Well, because we think, well, some of these parts, they really are good. They make a lot of sense to me. I understand what uh, is going on here, but parts seem repetitive and foolish and at times totally scandalous. And I think that happens because we come to the Bible with an understanding of what it's supposed to be. And when we start reading, We hit maybe numbers and we begin to say, what is this doing here? What is this supposed to be? I don't understand what the Bible is. So it brings us to this question, what is the Bible? Answering that question is critical to understanding how each scripture is is true and relevant and what the role of the Bible is. So what is the Bible? We'll try and look at that this morning. First thing I'd like to say is the the Bible is divine and human. Sometimes when we think of the Bible as the Word of God, we kind of have this picture in our our minds that it floated down from heaven, just complete as it is, perfectly situated and relevant to our culture. But that's not the history of the Bible at all. That's not the testimony of what the Bible says that it is. Um, Quiz question. How much of the Bible did God literally write? About a page. The Ten Commandments, God literally wrote with his finger in the stone. You can also maybe argue there's three words in a wall uh, for King Belshazzar that were written by the hand of God. But other than that, God didn't literally write down the Bible. Now, other parts of the Bible, large sections in the prophets and in the Gospels, the Bible says, or dictated by God. They were the words of Jesus or the, the words that the prophets spoke on behalf of God. But the vast majority of the words in the Bible were written by human hands and they were pr- processed by human minds as they were inspired by God. Now, I see a few concerned faces here. This is, it's helpful in this to think about another word of God that we say is divine and human. That word of God is Jesus himself. The word of God, fully God, fully God. Jesus was 100% God and he was 100% human. His humanity did not invalidate his deity and his divinity, his deity, did not invalidate his humanity. So let's remember, Jesus was born in most ways as any other human. Like a baby, or when he was a baby, he didn't speak. As an infant, he, he, he didn't speak. He had to learn and he had to grow in knowledge and stature just like any other human. That's what Matthew tells us, that he grew in knowledge and stature. And when he did learn to speak, it wasn't English. It wasn't some divine language. Jesus learned to speak the language of the people who spoke around him. He spoke predominantly Aramaic, but he would also, he probably knew Greek and Hebrew as well. And Jesus learned the cultural customs of the day. He spoke in the metaphors and the manners of the people who were around him. Jesus was as much a product of first century Palestine as he was the Son of God. He was more than any just first century Jew but he was a first-century Jew. He wasn't less than that. And if Jesus of Nazareth were to teleport in to us this morning, a lot of what he said would be completely foreign to us. First of all, he would be speaking a completely different language we don't understand, and he would also be speaking in a different manner, in a different custom. Not because we're wrong, or not because we're not his followers, but because we operate in a different cultural context. Now, we know that God isn't uh, bound... By culture, but he chose to limit himself into a particular culture so that he could enter human history. And that's the same idea in the Bible. It didn't just drop down in some universal language or some universal genre. It was written in a specific cultural context, and it was written to by real people and the manner that they write. So it's rooted in a cultural historical setting. Another way to look at it is that the Bible is literature again it can be more than just a simple piece of literature but it can't be less and literature is gated what i mean by that is has a certain way of speaking there's certain conventions in terms of reading literature to understand what it's trying to communicate of course there's simple things like languages the bible is written in uh, hebrew aramaic and greek and we depend on people who have studied those languages to translate them in a language that we can understand which for most of us is english but literature also comes in different genres, different ways of writing. There's different types of books. So think about your bookshelf or the library. What types of books are there? What are some types of books? Novels, okay? Poetry, I heard something here. Sci-fi, yeah? Comic books? History? Romance? Pardon? Biographies? A manual, yeah? Cookbooks? All right. I, I listed a bunch. You got some that I didn't. There's an, a number that we did. Fairy tales, novels, historical fiction, biography, autobiography. How about something like a reference book, like a dictionary or a, um, a textbook, an academic research paper, a magazine? See, and we know, because we've experienced these type of books, the different ways that we encounter them, the different ways to understand what they're doing. So you read a fairy tale very differently than you read a biography, right? A biography is supposed to be rooted in a historical fact, that this happened to this person, and you also get insight into what they were thinking at different times. Whereas a fairy tale, once upon a time, it's supposed to end with a moral, it's supposed to teach you how to live, not something that actually happened. Or you read a novel very differently than you read a reference book or a dictionary. If you read a dictionary cover to cover, you're interesting. That's, but a novel is supposed to be read from the front cover to the back cover. Whereas with a dictionary, we, there's a specific thing we're looking for, and we go and we find it and we read that part. So we understand intuitively these different types of books. And the Bible actually includes a number of different genres, each with different set of assumptions and understandings that the original reader would understand, but for us sometimes requires a little bit more attention. Now this is one of these places where I would love to spend the afternoon and walk through the main different types of the Bible, but we do not have the opportunity to do that. Fortunately, however, there's a really good YouTube video channel called The Bible Project. And they do a lot of great videos just in general looking at different books of the Bible, but they're in the middle of a series called how to read the Bible. And uh, I would just really recommend that. We'll put a link on the website. But you can also just go to youtube.com and search Bible Project and look for their, uh, their videos on how to read the Bible. They also have a podcast if you want to dig deeper where the two main guys kind of discuss. And it's, it's really good. Um, but I do want to point out one thing that we often miss that helps us to read the old, particularly the Old Testament better, but really all of the Bible. And that's that the Bible is meditative literature. You might notice when you're reading, particularly the Old Testament narratives, books like Genesis, for instance, they're written differently than how we write narrative today, how we tell a story that happened. In, in modern times, good narrative includes a lot of detail. We find out what everybody was wearing and what they were thinking and all of that, and we set up these, these very uh, detailed events of world building and, and setting. But... Hebrew narrative rarely includes that level of detail, and when it does, it's usually very important to the story. And Hebrew narrative also very seldom summarizes a moral at the end for us to see, where we might tell a story and say, this is what you're supposed to learn from it. The Bible doesn't do that with most of its narrative. It tells the story, and then it lets you step away and think about it. I might... This is maybe a little bit unfair to modern narrative, but modern narrative is kind of like a fast food restaurant where you go, you get everything you want right away, it tastes good at least in the moment, uh, and then you're done. Hebrew narrative is a lot more like a cow chewing its cud. You're supposed to take a bite, you step back and you chew, you bring it back up again, don't think about that too much, and then you chew, and you you are supposed to spend time with it and slowly digest it. But you see, when we don't understand that that's what it's doing, when we're looking for a quick moral or a quick narrative, then we fail to understand the literature of the Bible. We don't understand how it's written to communicate to us. And then we'll end up with extra pieces on the floor. We'll end up with that crazy chair instead of something that we can actually use. So the Bible's a a human work and a divine work, and it's written in a cultural context. Now here's the good news of that. The good news of that is that the Bible understands the human experience. It didn't just drop from heaven and only tangentially relates to human life. Rather, it hits all of it. We looked last week at the Psalms of Lament. And some of those we read them and we're like, how can this be in the Bible? It's like saying, God, why did you abandon me? But that's because that's the human experience is that sometimes we feel like that. The Bible hits every part of the human experience, hits every emotion. It hits success. Failure, lament, despair, joy, and sorrow. When we go to the pages of the scriptures, we see what it's like to be human. We recognize it because that's what our experience is like. It's not just something out there, but it's written from a human, uh, with that human experience built in. So that's the good news. The bad news is that when we go into the Bible, we have to consider the culture that it's written in. It takes a little bit more effort. We need to think about how the writers of the day wrote For example, in the case of the New Testament letters, these were letters written to churches that had specific problems and questions to be addressed, and we need to begin to understand what those are because they might not be the exact same problems and questions that we are facing. Just like in someone 300 years ago, when we're having these sermons on these questions you've asked, they might be asking different questions and they need to do a little bit more work to understand what's being communicated. Second thing we want to talk about the Bible is divine and human. The Bible also has a narrative arc. So that raises a question for us when we talk about that the, uh, the Bible is, in, is written in a different cultural context. Well, how does it really relate to us? If it was written for that certain context, what does it have to offer us? And the answer is, is that it's shaped along a narrative. It tells a story, as Nathan was saying earlier. It tells the story of God's work in the world to create a people for himself and to draw the whole world into his kingdom. So what is that narrative? I spent a lot of time trying to summarize this narrative very shortly into a way that we could put in, and then I decided I've recommended the Bible project videos. Why don't we just show one of those instead? So we're going to show the second uh, Bible project video on um, from their How to Read the Bible series, and it summarizes the narrative
1: of the Bible. So let's watch that.
2: The Bible is an important book, but it's really long.
1: Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but all together they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life.
2: And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity.
1: Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they are made as God's image. Which means that they are commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that is represented by a fruit tree. So, humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them.
2: And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple, take the fruit. It will give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own
1: terms. And so they seize this knowledge. And as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story
2: of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah.
1: Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity.
2: And this is why the rest of the Bible story
1: is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God.
2: Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in.
1: And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened.
2: So, even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can
1: succeed? Well, the prophets said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice.
2: And so the part of the Bible called the Old
1: Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion.
2: He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into
1: and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it is people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. That is confusing but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus that he is God become human. To be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself.
2: So, now humanity is presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree.
1: Stick with the old way of being human or venture into this new way. And In the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power people who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return.
2: The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus.
1: But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus.
2: And they are called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything.
1: And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that is the story of the
2: Bible and
1: it brings all of these books together. But what is interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to this story in a unique way and that is what the next video will begin to explore.
0: Those are uh, cool videos, and they're, they're helpful. But I just wanted to add a few points to that video. First of all, did you notice the constant theme of the people of God or the communities of God? So this narrative arc follows uh, God's um, interaction with his people. So they're not all unrelated groups. And There's a common lineage. At first, it's a, an actual genetic lineage, but then it becomes a spiritual lineage of people who, uh, from, as people from different nations are brought into the family of God to be a part of God's people. And the second thing I want to point is because of this, the Bible is constantly referencing itself. The biblical authors are aware of what happened before and they're steeped in that narrative of what God has done with their people because it isn't just the narrative of the Bible. It's their narrative. It's their history. They see themselves as part of it uh, because they are the people of God. So they write. when they write, they both make obvious and subtle uh, ties back to what's happened in the story before and lay the groundwork for what's going to happen so that the whole Bible is connected together in this, in this narrative. And they use images and, and phrases and design patterns to connect what they're saying to stories that happened before in order to develop an idea or a theme. So for me, this raises a question. What? Why narrative? Why do narrative at all? Why would God write, give us the Bible in this way? Wouldn't it be easier for us if God would just drop kind of a summary of the Bible, maybe a YouTube series, um, and then show us how to, get to, to, how to get to know him and how to get to heaven. If he would just write a summary for us, wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it be easier if God would just do that? It would solve a lot of confusion and a lot of trying to understand these, these narratives. And maybe that's true. But then again, maybe the point of the Bible isn't that God just wants me to know him and to serve him, and then get to heaven. You know, I think God does want us to know him, but he wants us to, to know him deeply. He wants us to understand who he is, and he wants to shape our lives, our entire life. I had an eye appointment last week, and there was a poster on the, the wall of the optometrist's office, and it, it said, when you change how you see, you change everything. And They were just selling glasses, but um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Narrative gives us, a narrative gives us a new vision for the world, and it changes everything that we do. Isolated facts and propositional truths, they don't have the same power to shape our lives as a narrative does. Even fictional stories uh, have this power. Take, for example, these um, signs that I, I saw that were inspired by the Harry Potter franchise. Any Harry Potter fans? A few, a handful. Okay, so is that up there? They'll come shortly. I'm, uh, there we go. So the, the top two and the one on the left, they're protest signs. I just pulled them off the internet. I don't know exactly what protest they were from. But I, I found it interesting that when these people went to, um, to express their feelings and talk about the ideal that they wanted to see in the world, they reverted to this narrative, this fictional story that had given them so much meaning and purpose and understanding of how the world would be. The one on the bottom right is really interesting to me. It's uh, from a charitable organization called the Harry Potter Alliance. And the, it's a group of people who have been shaped by this fictional story and the ideals that they saw lived out in it. And they, it, it, I don't know if you can read it. It says, we are book eight. The story continues. Now, if you're familiar with Harry, the Harry Potter series, there's seven books. So what these guys are saying is, we, I, we are continuing on the ideals that we saw put out in this narrative they've inserted themselves into the narrative and they're continuing on what they saw the work that was done in there and this isn't new this idea of of being so shaped by a narrative that it completely changes your life there was the movement of the Jedi's in the 70s and 80s from the Star Wars universe wanting to live out the ideals of the Jedi and it's been true for many of the great works in history that's what good literature does It draws you in, and it shapes you. It's been like that for centuries. When uh, Alexander the Great captured much of the known world at that time, he did so carrying a copy of Homer's Iliad, and he read it every night before he went to bed, and he slept with it and read it in the morning and quoted from it when inspiring his troops. Narrative has that ability to shape us, and that's exactly what the Bible is doing. It's giving us a narrative that shapes us a narrative that we're a part of. Not a fictional one, but a true one. Remember that it's the narrative of God's work in the world and his interaction with his people. And he's brought us in to be a part of his people. So this is our narrative that comes out in the Bible. It's our history. We're a part of it so it can shape who we are. But how exactly? What should we be looking for? What can we find in the narrative of the Bible? Well, first, it shows us what God is like. Have you ever uh, noticed when you're in a job interview, they don't ask you a question like, are you good at facing conflict? What do they say? Tell me about a time when you faced conflict. What are they looking for? They don't want some disassociated fact of you. They want to, you to tell them a narrative. They want to hear what you are like in action. And this isn't just true for people you don't know very well. This is the, We do the same thing with the people we know the best. Every time that... I mean, both times that my wife and I have gotten to an argument, I remembered this one story about her. Uh, I know that she is someone who cares for me and who will overcome, who loves me even in spite of my flaws. And I, I know that not just because it's a fact, but I know it because of a particular story that happened to us when, even before we were married, we were um, arguing about something, I can't remember exactly what, and we were walking to the arena, and about halfway through the walk, my shoelace came undone, but I wasn't going to stop and, and do it. So we keep walking, we get to the arena the last little bit in silence because of this disagreement that we were having. And then when we get in the doors, and I'm about to go, I think I was going to go play hockey or something, so uh, I was going to go to my, my change area, she said, Kyle, stop. And without saying a word, she bent down and she tied my shoe. And that has impacted me so much because I was, if we're honest, probably being a little bit of an idiot and a jerk. And she was saying, I disagree with you now, but I love you, and I'm going to serve you anyway. And that story from however many years ago shapes completely how I view my wife. And now every time I get in an argument and I feel like, oh, she's not caring about me, I remember that. It has impacted me deeply because it shows me who she truly is. I got emotional telling that story and I lost my place. So narratives uh, help us to find out more about God and how he acts through the way that he acts because you act out of who you are. And when we see how God acts, we know who he is. We see his holiness. We see his love. We see his justice and his grace as he interacts with his people. The biblical narrative shows us what God is like and because we're created in his image, it shows us what we are supposed to be like and what happens when we don't live according to that image that he's built into us. Secondly, the Bible, biblical narrative gives us characters that, we can, that reflect what we are like and that we can see ourselves in. These characters both act as an encouragement for us but also a warning to us. We're able to see the world a little bit differently because we see the world through the eyes of these characters. Like Abel, we find ourselves in a sense that God seems to favor someone else. and But because we see his narrative, we realize that we need to be aware that sin is ready to change that feeling into an action that we're going to regret. Or maybe like Job, we feel that God has abandoned us, that he owes us an explanation for why he, the world is operating like it does And as we looked at last week, then we hear through the eyes of Job the message that God gave him. Maybe like David, we see everything is going right and we can sit back and relax, but because we look at his narratives, we understand that we need to guard ourselves, especially in times of prosperity. Or like Israel, over and over and over again, we realize that we don't just need laws, new leaders or new warnings, we need a new heart. Because that is what the narrative of the Bible ultimately leads us to. It shows us our repeated inability to follow God and his unwavering commitment to bring us back, his, his unwavering commitment to bring us back to him. It leads to us it leads us to him and it grows our appreciation for him and it grows our love for him. And the third thing I want to cover is that the Bible is authoritative. So in a minute, I'll show you all of this kind of in action, but we want to talk about the implication of the Bible being divine. We talked about the implications of it being human, but I didn't touch so much on what does it that mean that it's a divine and human book. When we, talk about the, um, when we talked about the Bible being divine and human before, we mentioned Jesus. We said we can look to Jesus to understand the Bible a little bit better. Do you know what the two most distinguishing marks of Jesus' divinity were? Immediately we think of his power, we think of his miracles. We're like, oh, those were the signs that he was divine. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, everything I do, I do for the power of the Holy Spirit. So he rested on the, the rest of, of the Trinity to empower him. And Jesus even said that those who would come after him would do even greater works than he did. So it wasn't Jesus' power that set him apart. It was his authority and the way that he imaged what God was like. Over and over again, that's what the, Jesus himself says and those who are around jesus it always speaks with such authority so it wasn't his powers, was his authority and the way he demonstrated what god is like we already talked a little bit about how the biblical narrative helps us to see god but the bible also claims to be authoritative uh in our sorger we did second second timothy chapter 3 verse 16 i'm going to start a little bit earlier in quoting that from verse 15 but this is what paul says to timothy From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul invents a a word here to describe the Bible. He said, we translate it God-breathed. Your translations might say something different. But he's combining the word God and breath. And he's showing that even though the Bible is a human work it ref- that reflects the culture and personality and, and writing style of the human author, it's also breathed out by God. It's exhaled by God. And for what effect? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. See a similarity in those things? They all uh, uh, involve opposition to some degree or another. When you go to teach someone, when you uh, go to correct them, when you rebuke them, you're, you're always speaking back to them. You don't get rebuked by something that completely agrees with you. So we don't just look for things that we agree with in the Bible and then throw out the rest. We let God speak into the, our lives even when it conflicts with how we want to view the world. And because the Bible is God-breathed, it has the authority to confront and correct us. But it does so in order to transform us and equip us for God's mission. And one of the ways it does that, it gives us a strong foundation on which we can build our lives. Because we know that the Bible originates in God, it is a solid foundation for us to cling to. Like last week when we were talking about suffering and going through suffering, when you can barely hold on to anything, we know that we can hold on to the promises of Scripture because they're God-breathed. Now, the earlier part, part of our question that we were asked asking was did god really like really write the bible and i i partially answered that before that god only literally wrote the ten commandments but all of scripture is breathed out by him all of scripture originates from him and carries his authority and his certainty and his surety this is the claim of the bible itself not just here but in other places as well now if you're listening, and especially if you don't want to uh, believe the things I'm saying, I am making a very circular argument. I just said the Bible is, uh, it has divine origin because the Bible says it has divine origin. I can make a better case for that, but not this morning. So that's one of the things that I'm going to uh, link out to. So if you want to dig a little bit more into how do we know that, that the Bible is divine, I'm writing something on that, and we'll put it up on the, on the website. Now... This has felt, at least to me, a little bit like a seminary class. I work at a seminary, but I don't teach there. But it seems a little bit more teaching. So uh, what we're going to do is do a little bit of group work together. Can we do that to close out? Let's uh, try and put all of this out into application. We've talked about the Bible. Now let's actually read it and through apply some of these things and see if we can uh, figure out how to read the Bible based on what we've learned. Is that Okay. Three of you say it's okay. Great, that's good enough for me. Okay, so uh, I didn't double-check with Nathan, but I think he asked someone to read. Okay, great. So we're going to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 to 14, and we're going to go through this story. This is, I just picked this story because I had a conversation with someone after the service about it last week, so it was in my mind. It's not the best example of how to read the Bible. It's not the worst example. It's just a run-of-the-mill part of the narrative of Scripture, and we're going to try to apply what we've learned and dig into it. But really, we're going to do this together. I'm going to get a stool just to show you that it's not just me talking. All right. Have we turned there? You can read then. Genesis 22 verses 1 to 14. Sometime later,
3: tested Abraham. He said to him, "Abraham, here I am," he replied. Then God said, "Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut out, cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided.
0: Thank you. Okay, first thing, what's happening in this narrative? What, the bare bones of the story? Hmm? A test of faith? Let's keep up the uh, um, explanation, just the very definition of the, of the narrative. What, what is God asking Abraham to do? To sacrifice his son. And then what happens? Then they go up, they go to perform it, and God provides. Now let's start with this idea of meditative literature. I remember that idea of a cow chewing its cud. There's one big question here that uh, I'd say like 90% of people, um, it makes them stop and they what? That doesn't make any sense. Does anyone see what the, what's the big question that this narrative makes you ask? why yeah why does god ask abraham to sacrifice isaac and now we might look back and say well that was a common practice in the people around israel and and that might be true but it's very it would have been a very strange request for specifically for abraham to sacrifice isaac why would that be very strange it's his own son yeah it was his only son We'll get to that. That's a good observation. Yeah. If we went back up in the, in the narrative, we'd see that, that God had promised Abraham that he'd have many sons through Isaac. And so God's made this promise already that, I mean, that's a very difficult promise for God to keep if Abraham sacrifices Isaac, that Isaac will have many children. It's possible, I suppose. Uh, but it seems very difficult. And it's also sacrificing humanity. humans is contrary to God's character. He's already revealed that he's put his image in in man and they shouldn't be killed. Okay? So we have these. It's a very strange request from God. Chew, chew, chew. So Abraham knows that God's made this promise. Um, and it will be through Isaac. In fact, it was even revealed previously that it would be through Isaac that, uh, that Abraham would have these these children. How has Abraham before responded to God's promises when they seem difficult? Can you think of Abraham's response to God's promises God had made before? What? Not exactly. No. No, When, when God first promised Abraham that he had many children, remember his wife Sarah was barren and Abraham was getting past childbearing age himself. And so Sarah said well, if God wants you to have children, go and have children with my maidservant. So previously, when it looked like God was not going to be able to fulfill his promises, Abraham has said, I'll help you out, God. Right? Oh, that's interesting. So Abraham has the history of not trusting God to fulfill his promise. And actually, if you look further back in Abraham's past, there's uh, this reappearing motif of, of Abraham uh, Trying to help out God. So this has got us thinking. That's good. We've, we've dwelt on it. We're, we're doing some meditative uh, lit- viewing it as meditative literature that we need to think about. Now let's add some cultural uh, context, some cultural thinking. This was already brought up. Abraham, or Isaac is Abraham's only son. So what does that mean for Abraham? Yeah. Yeah, so even aside from God's promise, it's a huge sacrifice for Abraham to give up Isaac because as his in that culture, it was a collectivist culture, so your identity came from your family, not just your own individual thing, and there was no one to carry on Abraham's legacy, his family. And so for all of Abraham's hope, both his spiritual hope that God would fill his promise and his you know, physical hope that his family would continue, All of that hope is in Isaac, or it would be if his hope wasn't actually in God. Yeah, Isaac is demonstrating that faith in his father that God wants demonstrated in in Abraham's life, in him. So when God is asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he's not so much asking him to sacrifice Isaac, God's asking Abraham to show where his hope is. That's what you said earlier. We just jumped the line a little bit on it. Is is his hope in his son the thing that was promised, or is it in God, the one who gave the promise? God's ensuring that Isaac isn't an idol to Abraham. God's ensuring that Abraham doesn't put all of his hope into Isaac that his faith is in God, not in him. Now, are we starting to identify with Abraham? Remember, we can look back in the story and see our lives reflected. Are we seeing how God calls us to put our hope in him, that we're entering the story, we're going up the mountain with Abraham? God, I don't want to sacrifice this thing. I believe you gave it to me. I believe it can be used for good. I believe I'm supposed to have this, and yet I don't want, it to, I don't want to look to it to fulfill me. I want you to fulfill me, because that's what you're calling me to. I know this is a good thing, but I can't let it be a God thing. It would hurt to lose it. We're letting Scripture correct us and oppose us, right? Okay, now let's move up and down the narrative. We said these narratives connect with each other. Can you think of something that is similar to this story? What is what draws on this story, or where does this story draw on other stories in the Bible? There's actually a few. There's another sacrifice on top of a mountain. That's Elijah proving God's power. Maybe the one that's most central to this is on a mountain very near to this one, perhaps the same one, probably not. There's another father that leads his son up. Up on a mountain to be sacrificed. Not on an altar, but on a cross. Yeah, this time there's no goat in the thicket. The son was offered. God knew that Abraham trusted God because, God because Abraham had not withheld his only son from him. How much more do we know that we can trust God because he did not withhold his only son from us? But he went all the way. Abraham was willing that Isaac die. God was willing that Jesus actually did die. How much more are we able to, to give those things which are precious to us because God did not withhold what is precious to him, so Abraham, he was afraid of losing all that he had hoped for in his son, but and he had to trust that God was for him. And we know that we that God is for us because what He has done in a story that's very similar to this, and that's what God does through His Word. Exactly. Yeah, in the context of of real life, He reveals what he's like and what he's doing in the world and then he invites us to be a part of it and that's what he does in the Bible let's pray father thank you for your words sometimes we don't understand it we don't see what you're doing but we know that it came about because of you working in the in the lives of ordinary people and because of that we can identify what you're doing in there we can resonate with it no matter what our situation in life we can find a place where you have been working with people are in a similar place. And in it, you're shaping a narrative that leads us to you. And you're inviting us to be a part of that. I pray that you help us to do it. Pray this.